As most of y'all know, this church puts a strong emphasis on God's Word. And part of the way that we do that is by teaching through a book of the Bible at a time. And typically this is in a format called expository preaching, where we take, we take a passage and then we kind of uh, break it down uh, according to how it was intended for the original audience. And then we kind of dig deep for, for our own context because we want to be able to, uh, to apply these timeless truths today in our own, in our own uh, idiom, so to speak. And so every once in a while, though, We'll have a topical sermon, such as um, a few weeks, I guess it was really a few months ago at this point, we had a message on abortion. Um, every so often we have a, a topical sermon, but or a textual sermon that's based on something that just kind of jumps out at me, and that's what you're getting today. Uh, I decided to put Acts 18 on hold for at least a week, because I really felt like, like God was getting my attention uh, during my morning devos this week. He really just impressed the end of Romans 13 on me, and so... Um, this, this is, Romans 13 is kind of a famous chapter, mostly because of its first seven verses. Uh, usually when people talk about Romans 13, they're talking about in the sense of submission to government uh, or authorities, or maybe they're reading the, the middle section, which is what Christy actually read earlier uh, today about fulfilling the law through love, and that is awesomely important stuff. But the part that I felt led to read this morning is actually the end of the chapter, the last four verses. It's not a long chapter, and these aren't long verses, uh, but they really spoke to me. And in the place that I think we currently are as a society and as the church, we we could have a, a strong encouragement from these verses. I think we could probably all agree that we can use some strong encouragement. So I'm going to ask you, uh, we don't do this often, but... Um, I'm going to ask you if you would please stand up with me and read. There's no cities with long, weird names this week, um, and this time it's just good, solid instruction. So um, remember that Paul has just explained that loving one's neighbor fulfills the law of God, but then he pivots and he says this. Please join me in reading. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So let us then cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Will you bow with me? Father God, I ask in Jesus' name that each person here will take something heavy with them home. I pray that we leave something here, Father. We leave our, our sinful desires here, that we leave our worries here and our anxieties, but that we take home uh, the heavy burden of being uh, exactly, Lord, who you want us to be this week. And Father, we know we will not achieve that precisely, but we pray that you will give us the desire to do so. We know that as heavy as that burden is, it's really light to us because you bear it, because we are yoked with Jesus. So help us, Father, to be able to understand that, to recognize that, and to walk in that today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Um, so before we jump into the text, let's talk about something that I think is very near and dear 
to every person here. And that is sleep. Can we agree? Can I get an amen? amen? Thank you. Who in here likes sleep? Most of okay, yeah. You know, um, Jim Gaffigan says, the best is when you wake up and you look at the clock and you still have time to sleep. It's like finding a thousand dollars. And I, I, you know, can you identify with that? We all like sleep, but but sometimes it's very important to not be asleep. Like, for instance, um, when you're supposed to be getting ready for work, or when you're preparing for a test, or when your pastor can see you. Sometimes, sometimes, it's not just important, but it's necessary to wake up, to rise and shine. And today we're going to see that's exactly what the Lord wants His people to do. So we're going to look at what Paul said to the church in Rome. This is, again, from Romans 13, starting in chapter, uh, excuse me, in verse 11. He says, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. Church, it's time for Christians to wake up. It is time for us to wake up. It's not always fun. I know. Because as previously established, we like sleep. You know what one of the most terrible sounds is? For, uh, for Gen Xers, anyway? You know what I'm talking about, right? I actually had that sound on my phone, and I forgot to pull it up. So you get that version of it. Um, yeah, you, we hate that. Anybody else been traumatized by that sound? <laughs> you know, that sound in the morning. It's, it's terrible. It, it's not just the auditory assault. It, it's the association with rolling out of bed when it's still dark, you know, and looking at those, those ugly red numbers glowering at you from the nightstand, you know. It, it's just, some of you boomers, you guys used to wake up to the sounds of that ringing, right? That sound. It's It's horrible. It's terrible. That's probably why some of you still have flashbacks whenever we do the school bell sound to get everybody back together. I've had so many people say, I hate that sound. I'm like, oh, it doesn't bother me, but hey, you know, I'm not used to... Anyway, um, I, I think that, uh, that some of you military folks probably used to be in shouted out of bed, right? You know, by your spouse today. No, I'm kidding. Um, but but at, least, at least nowadays, cell phones give us more variety. Uh, I do appreciate that. When I wake up um, on school mornings at 5.30... It's, it's to Natalie Grant's Your Great Name. Love that song. The, the bonus, it gets stuck in my head sometimes. So that's a pretty awesome thing. But at any rate, it's hard to wake up. But, but like we said earlier, there are times that it's necessary to be awake. Like, you can't drive while you're asleep. You can't be on watchman duty when you're asleep. And we cannot be spiritually asleep now, for the hour has come. Now, what hour? He's talking about the space between when Jesus came the first time and when he'll come back for the last time. And no human, including Christ himself when he was here on earth, no human knew then, nor do we know now, when the last moment, the last ticking second of that hour will be. There's a similar passage to, to this Romans uh, 13, 11, and 12. There's a similar passage in 1 Thessalonians 5. We're going to allude to that a few times. And in there, Paul writes, let us not sleep as others do. He says, but let us keep awake and be sober. And this brings to mind a lot of Jesus' parables 
about servants who are unprepared for their masters to show up, you know, and it kind of ruins their day when he gets back and they're drunk and they're beating the other servants and they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing. We are supposed to be awake, spiritually speaking, alert, eyes open. Why? For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. You know, it's kind of cool to think this was just as true nearly 2,000 years ago as it is today. You know, what do we do about this, church? Well, first we wake up, and then we look up. What salvation is Paul talking about here? I mean, he's not talking about the initial justification that we receive by faith because he's writing to a bunch of people who already know the Lord. And it doesn't seem as though he's talking about sanctification here either because he gets to that later in the passage. Here it seems like like he's referring to when every believer in Jesus Christ is going to meet him again in the air. And that's an awesome thing. He's telling us to look up with expectation for Jesus. Now, Paul, he's not, it's not that he's necessarily saying that Jesus is going to come at any particular time, but he's saying we need to be prepared at all times for when Jesus returns. He says, you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, there is peace. Insecurity, then suddenly destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. It's also 1 Thessalonians 5. It'll be as in the days of Noah. Everybody's still going to be doing their thing. You know, the righteous will be living in the spirit by faith and the wicked will be living in the flesh and Jesus will return at a time when he is not expected which is why we are supposed to live with expectation. Look up. Salvation is at hand. He is coming back, church. He is. No matter how terrible things may become in this world, He is eventually going to return and He's going to make all things new. But first, all this is going to burn. And that's including this. We must not be in love with this world or the things of it. But Christians, we can welcome the return of Christ. You know, we we fall into Paul's description in 2 Timothy 4 of those who love his appearing that will receive a crown of glory when Christ returns. We know this because we have placed our hope in Jesus Christ and in his good news. We don't have to flounder around like we once did, you know. By the way, it was brought to my attention this past week that uh, we need to remember something And that is that we too were once darkened in our understanding and stuck in futile thinking and hopeless ways before God opened our eyes and revealed the truth of our sin and our need for a Savior. And so we should be, therefore, exceedingly careful about elevating ourselves above those who have not been given that gift of faith. We don't have anything to brag about. Everything we have is from God. We should not brag as though we've done anything to earn it. And with that in mind, I think we can continue in Paul's train of thought. He says, the night is far gone. 
and the day is at hand. What does he mean by that? I think it's a reminder in connection with the previous statement that we need to wise up. Wise up how? What does that mean, you know? Let me ask you, how many of you have awakened to the alarm clock and you've physically gotten up, but you were still sort of awake in name only? You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I mean, in our house, that's the pre-caffeinated state. Um, you know, awake, but not alert and oriented yet. Um, there, there's this British movie that came out a while back, and it's kind of a comedy, zombie, a zombity? I don't know. It's, it's this movie where there's this guy, and he wakes up in a first year wondering if he's a, if he's a zombie because he's walking like this, and he comes in, and he goes, yeah, you know, and then he goes walking through the day, and, and then eventually there's some kind of zombie apocalypse thing that happens, and then he just walks through the day anyway, not realizing that he's surrounded by zombies, and then all of a sudden he does realize it, and then hilarity ensues. Anyway, a lot of believers are like this spiritually. We go through the routine, you know, of being a faithful Christian. We attend church, we serve occasionally, you know, we pray when we think about it, whatever, but we're missing the fact that we are currently engaged in a war for the hearts and minds of our families and, and, and our, our friends and our neighbors. We need to wise up. We need to wise up to what's happening around us. We need to try to understand the times that we're in and do what we can to glorify Christ and spread His message while there's still time. Listen, um, while Christians are in this world, we got to remember this. We are behind enemy lines. But we also need to remember the true enemy isn't some guy on Facebook or someone in Washington, D.C. It's the devil, and he's prowling like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But Jesus is coming back. He is. And we ought to recognize that so we can prepare for it. You know, once more from Thessalonians 5, Paul says, but you were not in darkness, brothers, for that day, the, the day of Christ's return, to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. And he's right, because see, we don't, we don't belong to the enemy anymore. So let's shake out of this stupor and this complacency and start living like subjects of the king of kings. Cool? Can we do that? All right, great. So, so what does it actually look like, though? Well, I'm glad you asked, because Paul answers. He says, so let us cast off the works of darkness. I want you to pause there for a moment. Cast off the works of darkness. So in light of what we see, once we wake up and we look up and we wise up, what should we do with regard to to our toxic relationship with sin. Here's a hint. If you had a friend who was in a, a dating relationship and you could see beyond a shadow of a doubt that person was drawing them away from the Lord and there was no evidence whatsoever that that was going to change, what would your advice be to that person? I think I heard one person, yes, yes, and yes, but somebody said what I wanted to hear. What's that? Get out? Don't be unequally yoked? Break up! <laughs> Break up with that person, right? 
Even if there's strong feelings involved, you know that they need to end the relationship because of its destructive nature on their spiritual walk. Now, once again, this is a dating relationship. Okay, We're not talking about marriage. If you're married, that's different. You are committed. You are in a covenant relationship. And in that case, you need to do whatever is possible to work through that. But if someone is in a dating relationship with someone that is detrimental to them spiritually, we should tell them to break up. And here's the thing. Even if there's strong feelings involved, you know that it, it just it has to be done. It has to be finished. So how much more then should we commit ourselves and encourage one another to break up with the sins that are holding us back from walking faithfully with the Lord? I mean, look, Hebrews 12, there's this powerful illustration. I love Hebrews 12. There's so much good stuff in there. The author says, Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. You know, here we see the Christian life compared to a race and a race that requires endurance. So it's it's more of a marathon, right? than a sprint. So if we're really taking the faith seriously, if we're really taking our relationship with God seriously, why in the world would we want to do it with hindrances? Why would we tie our shoelaces together or or carry an anvil with us? (laughs) You know, it, it makes no sense. We need to break up with sin. We need to cast off these works of darkness, because they can only slow us down and trip us up. There's a reason the athletes wear nearly weightless, skin-tight outfits, because they want to do their best. Break up with sin and put on the armor of light. This is an interesting phrase, because there's a, a stark contrast between this and the previous command. Works of darkness are to be tossed away set aside, and we are to put on the armor of light. And in both cases, it's apparently something that we do. We do it through the power of the Holy Spirit, but it's something that we do. So our next logical step then in our path to rising and shining, as God desires us to do, is to gear up. Gear up. I like this phrase. It sounds very martial, you know. Gear up. We're going on patrol. It means equipping ourselves with what God has provided in order to go to battle against the forces of darkness. Gear up, friends, in the armor of light. We need to be equipped. There's a... Last time I I almost got myself in trouble when I referred to the office, but I'm going to do it again anyway. There's this one scene where, um, where the boss, Michael Scott, is talking to some other person and and she says, oh, have you read Leah, Lee Iacocca's book on leadership? And he goes, read it. I own it. But no, I haven't read it. How many of us do that with this? We're, we're given amazing equipment. And we're ignoring it. Not all the time, hopefully, and not all of us, hopefully. But we, we ignore the greatest piece of equipping Sort of the word. Anyway, I'm sorry, I'm off notes here, but it's important to me. I think we need to recognize this. We, we see this concept, this, this armor concept, in at least three different passages, three different letters 
that Paul writes. One of them, again, it's in 1 Thessalonians 5. Um, there's no surprise there. It's a similar passage. But the most famous one, you guys are probably familiar with this, is Ephesians 6, where Paul refers to the armor of God, which is likely another name for the same idea. And going over each piece of armor of God and, and what they mean and why they're important, that's a sermon for another day. But, but for now, let's read how Paul introduces the topic. He says, put on the whole armor of God. Why? That you may be able to stand against the devil and his schemes. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. And he goes on to say what we are wrestling against. It's the powers and the principalities of this present dark world and the forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Again, the ultimate enemy is not a person who lives in wickedness or who believes differently from us. They are, they are slaves to sin. They are victims of deceptive philosophies. You know, in 2 Timothy, Paul refers to our opponents having been taken captive by the devil in order to do his will. So we're not fighting as the world fights. We don the armor of light and of God so that we can stand firm against the devil's schemes. I mean, are, are we getting the picture? Because today's, today's whole passage is about taking our professed Christian faith seriously. That's what this is about. Let's keep going. Um, Paul writes, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. Now, folks, we're going to just very quickly touch on the latter half of this sentence first because I don't need to go into detail, but of the six things listed here, some of them are certainly more obvious sins than others, or perhaps I should say less socially accepted sins than others, but they're all sins. Quarreling and jealousy are sinful. Each sin on this short list is the opposite of what the Holy Spirit is telling Christians to do through the Apostle Paul here. He is encouraging us to step up and live what we profess. Walk in what we know to be true, as Jesus did. You know, when he says, let us walk properly, as in the daytime, he's reiterating that, that we need to get rid of these unfruitful acts of darkness. And, and, and then he gives us the, those few examples. But the real point of this command is that we will walk in the light as Christians are supposed to do. In fact, the scriptures make it abundantly clear that a, a person who is truly in Christ will show it by confirming his, conforming rather, his or her life to the example of Christ. In fact, there's a huge portion of the book of 1 John. It, it serves as a checklist for us to compare ourselves to to see if we're truly born again. People don't like to hear that, but that, that's in the Bible. There's 11 things there in 1 John where he says, you want to know if you're a Christian? Well, let's check this list. In the sixth verse of, of the first chapter of 1 John, we are told that a Christian must walk in the light as Jesus is in the light because he says, if we walk in darkness, our profession is false. Think about that. He says, if we walk in darkness, we lie. 
and essentially have no relationship to the truth. But we're left, we're left hanging with this fact. We are also told of, of the benefits of hanging with Christ. Excuse me, of imitating Christ. And hanging with Christ too. First John says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Now, what is fellowship? Anybody know the Greek word? I know you've heard it. Quantonia, that's right. It's not just a potluck, right? It's not just a game night. You know, it's a deep connection between people of like mind. Fellowship is, is, is incredibly important for, for we Christians to have as the world continues to drift ever further from the truth. We need that connection to one another. So, so we desperately require fellowship. And as we all become more like Jesus, we have a natural fellowship with each other. I'm going to come, it's actually a supernatural because it's spiritual. We have a supernatural fellowship that's far greater than any natural camaraderie that people are going to share based on common interests. Surface similarities that people have are not as valuable as the connection of the Holy Spirit. So walking in the light draws us nearer to one another, but there's an even more important reason that we must walk in the light rather than the darkness. i got to put a pin in that really quick to just say, I mentioned Romans 6 today in my Sunday school class too, and then you bring it up in communion, and it's just it, it, this goes right into what you're talking about, how important it is for us to have unity with one another. But even more importantly, we have to have unity with Christ. That's what it says. When we do this, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. The what? The blood of who? Jesus, his son, cleanses us from how much sin? All sin. How does that work? Well, let's review. When Jesus Christ who is the Son of God and simultaneously one with the Father, when He died on the cross, His blood, His suffering and sacrificial death, it was, it was poured out to pay for the sins of the world so that anyone who comes to Him in faith can receive the forgiveness of sins. And when Jesus rose from the dead, it was proof that every single statement that he made about himself was true. And every promise that God has ever made about eternal life was yes and amen in him. And that is an amazing realization, friends. If, if it doesn't move you to think of Jesus Christ living a perfect life and dying as your substitution and then rising triumphantly from the grave, then there's something drastically wrong in your heart and you need to pray that the Lord will restore in you the joy of salvation because our hearts must not grow cold. It should move you. So let's step up, church, and let's turn away from darkness and walk in the light. Paul continues, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, earlier he used the same phrase, put on, to describe what we do with the armor of light. And it's an interesting Greek word. It literally means like to slip into something, you know, to be, uh, to be clothed. And so I think we must be ready to suit up, friends. And this is a very interesting passage to me because the verse to put on is in the imperative tense, meaning it's a command. But we only see the phrase, put on Christ, in one other place in the Bible, and that's in Galatians 3. Paul says that we are too sued up there. He says, by putting on Christ, and yet in Galatians he says, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ 
have put on Christ. And so baptism is obviously a way that we put on Christ. And yet a few chapters later, you know, here in, in Romans 6, Paul indicates with the word us, you know, a few chapters ago from where we are in 13, he indicates that his readers have already been immersed in Christian baptism. Right? I mean, that's what he talks about. If, if, you've, been, if you've been baptized, he says you've died with Christ. So why would he make this statement then? I mean, if baptism is the primary way in which we put on Christ, then why might Paul give a whole bunch of baptized believers the instruction, the command to put on Christ? Here's what I think. I don't think he's commanding them to be baptized again, okay? I think that there's a few possible interpretations of this passage, but the one that makes the most sense to me is that the Holy Spirit, through Paul, is instructing believers to live in what has already been done. Live in what has already been done. You know, baptism by immersion in water, that's a one-time event, but it's, it's merely the entry point into the Christian walk, you know, every, every day. Every day we're to take up our cross and follow Jesus. Every day we are to renew our commitment to Him. Every day we are, we are to clothe ourselves in Him and, and walk according to His will and rely on Him for, for protection and provision and guidance in all things. But unfortunately, you know, it, it's tempting it's tempting for even Christians to think of Christianity or, or even the church itself as the object of our faith. But let's not forget, the object of our faith is a person himself. The object of our faith is not Christianity. The object of our faith is not the church. It's Christ Jesus crucified and resurrected. He is our hope. He is our life. So be clothed in him. Put him on as a consistent choice. Live and move and, and have your being in Jesus so that he may live and move and manifest in you as his vessel. All right, we're going we're gonna to finish what that whole sentence there goes. He says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. No provision. What does that mean? There's a phrase that we often use to mean allowing an opportunity to go by without seizing it, and that is to pass up on something. And usually, I think we view it negatively, as in, you know, missing, you need to get a next slide, please, uh, as in missing a chance to do something beneficial. But I think we can also see that there are often detrimental opportunities that we are given. Literally, every temptation to disobey God is, a, is an opportunity we should not take. And so I feel like the end of that sentence is a reminder that we must pass up on feeding our sinful desires. You know, as Paul wrote in Ephesians 4, we must give no opportunity to the devil. The NIV translates it as, as uh, the word opportunity as foothold. But the actual Greek word means an encampment behind enemy lines. Did you know that? Some of you did because I said it in a sermon a few years ago. But that's what it's a, it's a vantage point from which to wreak havoc on the enemy. 
A place to engender chaos, to produce ineffectiveness. Friends, listen, when we allow ourselves to succumb to sinful temptation, we are making provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And you know, the context there actually indicates that that it should better be translated to gratify its lusts. We should not be feeding our sinful nature, friends. You know, there's an old story uh, of an Inuit man who would bring a pair of dogs to different villages and he would host a dog fight. This is not, it wasn't Mike Vick, don't worry. Um, and this is not exactly a, a PC story, and I know that, but, but he would bring these two dogs, he would make them fight, he'd provide the villagers with a little excitement, he'd give them something to wager on. But he would also join in the betting. And while these dogs looked roughly the same, the dog he bet on would always win. And one day, according to this story, he was packing up to move on to the next village, and a guy caught him outside. He said, hey, man, Every time you come here, you bet on the right dog. How come you're always able to do that? How do you always know which one's going to win? And the man looked at him. He said, I'll tell you if you promise not to tell. I always know which dog will win because it's the dog I've been feeding the most. You know, our flesh nature, spirit nature, always at war, friends. And and the one that's going to come out on top is the one that we feed the most. Are you feeding the flesh? Are you listening to music and podcasts and watching TV and movies that are edifying or horrifying? Are you planning times to be alone, to look at pornography, or to commit some other sin? Are you having conversations that you shouldn't be having with someone who's not your spouse or maybe indulging in a fantasy life that's harming your soul? Are you putting too much emphasis, this is a big one, I want you to hear this, on something that might be good in itself, but it's distracting you from where the Lord has intended you to love and serve? You know, if if you're trying to feed your spirit, it will look like living in the roles that God has placed you in as a Christian, a spouse, a parent, a good neighbor or friend, a good mentor or mentee. It's going to look like a a radical paradigm shift away from from the, the, the things that the world considers important, wealth and pleasure and personal fulfillment. See, God doesn't want us to get distracted by those things. It means we're to make no provision for the flesh. We're not to gratify its lustful, sinful desires. And guys, the time is getting closer. This is not a game. This is serious. This is real. The stakes are real and very, very high. So let's wake up for the hour has come. Let's look up with expectation for Jesus who is coming back. Let's wise up to the reality of the fallen world and the times. Let's break up with our our sinful patterns. Let's gear up with the armor of God and light. Let's step up our walk so that we're walking in the light as he is in the light. Let's suit up and and stay focused 
clothing ourselves in Christ so that we'll be able to, to every day walk with him. And let's pass up on the sinful opportunities that come our way because church, listen, if we do this, we will light up the world as we reflect his light. Let's, let's take it more seriously than we've ever taken anything because it is the most important undertaking we'll ever know. Let's choose to rise and shine, friends. Rise and shine. I'm going to close in prayer, and as I, as I pray, I want to ask each of you to search your heart. Better, you know, better yet than that, I ask the Lord to search your heart and reveal to you what you need to do next. If you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, in his deity and death and resurrection, believe on Jesus. And if you believe on Jesus, but you've not been obedient to profess your faith publicly and be baptized by immersion as the Lord commands, then do it today. If you've already made that great profession of faith and you've been baptized, but you're convicted today that you've been backsliding, then repent. Repent and be faithful and confess to your brothers and sisters that you have a need for prayer. And if you are walking in Christ and you desperately someone, you know, need someone to, to walk alongside and, and to be in, in fellowship with, this church welcomes you to consider making us the body that you worship with. And we can be members in this faith journey together. Instead of inviting you, though, to come forward only during the invitation song, I'd like to also invite you to come forward during the prayer. I think some people are a little nervous when there's music and everybody's got their eyes open. I just want to give you a chance. Maybe, maybe you feel the Lord calling you. You can do that during the prayer, too. Just come sit on the front row. Whatever you need, let me know. We're here for you. This church body is here for you. We want to help you walk faithfully with Jesus Christ. This is your chance this morning to feed the right dog. So what choice are you going to make? Let's pray. God, thank you for this day. I thank you for the blessing of being able to preach your word to your people through the power of your spirit. God, as an intensely flawed human being, I'm just thankful for your grace and mercy, which is immense. I pray, Father, that if there's anyone here who's feeding the wrong dog on a regular basis, Lord, I pray that they'll be convicted of that and they'll stop. Help us to turn away from sin. Help us to not gratify those, those fleshly desires and not make provision for the flesh, but to walk faithfully in the light clothed in you. And I ask, God, that, that you might use this, this time as the world is growing somewhat darker, at least in this part of the world. I pray, Father, that you might winnow the church, that you might draw out the, the true and invisible church from within the visible professing church where so many people are are not really faithful, they're not really obedient, they're not really believing. God, help us not to view our faith as a tribe, Lord, because it's, it's, not, it's not about just belonging to, to something bigger than us. It's about belonging to Jesus. It's about completely putting our allegiance and our loyalty and our trust in him. And I pray, Father, that if there's anyone here who is being convicted in some way, that you give them the courage and wherewithal to come forward. Father, we pray that you will help us to walk with you in Jesus' name.